Hello, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you here uh, tonight. I'm Deepu Gowda. Uh, I'm the host for Narrative Medicine Rounds this evening. I'm an internist here and, uh, at Columbia, and I work in the same clinic as Dr. Sharon. And, uh, and I also direct the course at, at the medical school called Foundations of Clinical Medicine. That's the course where our students learn the physical exam. A lot of times when they first put on a stethoscope and start to uh, feel what, it, what that experience is like to make direct contact with patients. Um, it's also the course where we teach students the interview at the bedside. So the work that we do here in narrative medicine is absolutely central um, to the work of becoming a physician. Um, so it's my honor to, to welcome you here tonight. Just a quick look ahead. Next month, on May 1st, we'll be hosting Kwame Anthony Abaya. He is a Princeton professor and philosopher, um, and, and that guarantees to be a, a, an, an impressive evening. So we hope that we'll see you here in a month. So Dr. Sharon will introduce our speaker today, Kom uh, Toybean. Dr. Sharon is an internist who sees patients in the AIM clinic with me. Um, she holds a PhD in English, and she's really been a pioneer in this work of finding the bridges between the world of uh, creative world and the work of clinical medicine. Um, and we found that there are so many dividends to this work that has truly continued to change our culture in the way that we train students in the medical school. And over the past couple of years, that work has expanded to uh, finding ways to bridge training between doctors and nurses, uh, public health uh, students, as well as dentists. And so it's really the work of narrative medicine that has continued to allow those bridges to take place at this medical center. Um, and Dr. Sharon is a colleague, she's a mentor, and she's a dear friend. So, Dr. Sharon. And also, look what happens when we bring a great writer. <laughs> and, and, and so here in this room, indeed, are, are uh, Deepu and my, um, Deepu's and my colleagues from the clinical services, from the, uh, from the departments of medicine and pediatrics and, and uh, psychiatry and the hospital administration, as well as those who work with us in the, in the master's program on the main campus, those of you who are literary scholars, those of you who are yourselves writers, and I know, because I know a lot of you, many who have trekked in from far, um, not because you belong here or work here, but because you want to be here. Um, so let me introduce Colin Toybean. Um, uh, I, I'm sorry there's such a glare. I know it's kind of hard to see. I want a big screen behind me so you're not blinded. Uh, you're here, so you know, you know something about what we are bringing you in the next hour. Colin Toybean um, um, is an author of fiction and nonfiction. He's a literary scholar, although I don't know that he calls himself that. Uh, he's currently the um, Irene and Sydney Silverman Professor of the Humanities at Columbia. Uh, he's here as an Andrew W. Mellon Foundation Professor, which is a distinction that has gone only to a few. Uh, Orham Pamuk, uh, Judith Butler, this is, this is the distinction that is reserved for the celestial stars. <coughs> Uh, we're very fortunate to have, um, I don't know, drug him from Princeton. Um, 
uh, we know he grew up in Dublin. He lives in New York and Dublin now. His, his awards include uh, the, the book prizes as the Los Angeles Book Prize, shortlisted for Man Booker. He is one of the, one, uh, one of the I don't know, three, four uh, most influential novelists writing in English. Many of us, I certainly, came to know him through the book The Master. Uh, the Master is a fictionalized biography of Henry James. Uh, uh, Toybean is known as a Jamesian. Um, as a Jamesian myself, I know him as someone who came to know the mind and life of Henry James um, more than anyone could say. And um, uh, reading it, I was just dazzled. Uh, and I know James pretty well. And I was dazzled at what he saw in the life invented around the edges so as to let me see it. Uh, in, in, and it is fictionalized. I mean, it's not really everything that happened to James, but it's, it's, it's so deeply learned and felt that we know more about the James we know by virtue of having read the one imagined. So at one point, the, the James character in the novel, The Master, says of a woman who he loved, no one whom he knew had read his work as carefully, had tried to know him as dearly, that she was the only person he had ever known who was fully skilled at deciphering the unsaid and the unspoken. And I think, James, you have found another in Toy B. So, so then, of course, we began to read his fiction, and we began to teach his fiction. And uh, you don't know, but, but um, your mother's and son's collection has been taught now in, uh, throughout the world in, in even these medical settings. Uh, we, read, we read one minus one, which is a man looking back on the loss of his mother, and we learn things that we otherwise simply would not learn about how one grieves and how one submits to loss. Um, and so as we see, dazzled, the capacity to enter and inhabit these characters, we also feel that the writing is so precise, so tactful, that it retains the integrity of the teller and the subject, that this is not weepy merging with the subject or helpless sympathy in the face of the subject's predicament. Uh, this is not pity, but that the observant and expressing self, and I use that feeling licensed by your use of the word self, um, remains itself whole. Uh, I'm going to show you that and then, um, and then I will close. This is from the master. He's describing Henry James caring for wounded soldiers after um, in the Civil War. And he's at the bedside of a wounded soldier. He wanted to hold his young friend, help him now that the worst was over, take him home to his family to be looked after. He also knew that as much as he wanted to aid and console the soldier, 
He wanted to be alone in his room with a night coming down and a book close by. And the, the speaker himself understands the gap between these two desires filled him with sadness and awe at the mystery of the self, the mystery of having a single consciousness, knowing merely its own bare feelings and experiencing singly and alone its own pain or fear or pleasure or complacency. And he goes on simply to understand how deeply real and apart this self was. So we will hear Mr. Toybean now uh, reading a part from Testament of Mary, which as you know is on Broadway now, uh, which is the shocking story of um, the crucifixion and the life of Jesus as told by Mary. And he will tell us about that um, uh, on Broadway now um, that we will be dazzled by. Thank you very much. Um, I don't know if I should call you Doctor or Rita. Uh, in Ireland, you'd call you Doctor. Um, oh, sorry, does this have to go up? Um, when I was um, 17, there was an arts centre opened in the town of Gorey, which is 20 miles north of Enniscorthy, where we're from in the southeast of Ireland. And I had been there for a while, and eventually I went home. But I left them a phone number in case they needed me for anything. In other words, answer the phone, get tea for people, that sort of thing. And we didn't have a phone at home. And um, if you saw Mrs. Lynch walking towards our house, my mother would say, oh my God, here's Mrs. Lynch, meaning that, of course, somebody in the, in the, you know, the wider family must be sick or must be some bad news. But one day it was Mrs. Lynch for me saying, you're to phone Gory, you're to phone this number. So I phoned the number and it was the art centre. Um, I was a friend of mine who also worked at the art centre saying, come back up, there's something really interesting going on up here. So I went back, I hitchhiked back, back up, and um, he was working as stage manager on a one-man show, which was being presented by the actor Jack McGowan. And it was a one-man show based on the prose works of Samuel Beckett. And the art centre was built at the back of, of uh, the painter Paul Fonge's house. And Robert, who was my friend, told me that the strange part was this actor, who was very famous, he, was, he would sit in a bedroom on the second floor of the house. And Robert's job was to say, you know, half an hour, Mr. McGowan, 20 minutes, Mr. McGowan. And he wasn't to go in, just to say that. And then, you know, 10 minutes, Mr. McGowan, five minutes, Mr. McGowan. And then eventually he was to come in and he would find Mr. McGowan sitting frozen on the edge of the bed. And his job was, not to be frightened by this, but to lift him up, and get him under the elbows and lift him so he was standing. And then literally lead him as though he was frozen down through the house, through the kitchen, the back stairs of the house, and then get, onto the, get him onto the stage and then, once he had him on the stage, there was a stick. I mean, this was primitive stuff. There was a stick, and he was to go... And that was to let the lighting people know that he now had the actor where he should be. And um, the lights came up. And this frozen man came alive. And he could do anything with his face. 
and the lights weren't sophisticated. It wasn't a system of lighting. It was a system of using different expressions on your face. And he it was the first time I'd come across that mixture in Beckett of that pure despair tempered by a bitter humour and that nothing could be handled singly, that everything was nuanced and uh, that if you had something sad to say, it would be finished quickly with some remark which would make the audience laugh but laugh nervously. And of course, it was what was tremendously exciting was to see afterwards. Um, it was before they discovered the evils of teenage drinking, so no one minded the fact that I had found a drink called vodka and white lemonade. <laughs> and um, that you could, I could sit in the pub with my friend and we could watch the actor coming in. What was strange, of course, was how small he seemed and shrugging and not there much and he liked being in the corner he was on his own and then his wife would come in he wouldn't say much this figure who had held the stage who had held our attention for, for an hour and a half um, with a text that was so unfamiliar in its contours, in its texture that the idea that he would now be a different sort of man I mean it really interested me that idea that within him was this power and um, I suppose it was ten years later when I began to go to Galway um, for the opening nights of a theatre company in Galway which was called Druid and it was run by a woman called Gary Hines and they had started the theatre company in college they were all friends um, in school and they had continued they had, they, they had not taken jobs they had taken risks and slowly they had built up this great theatre so that Gary Hines would become the first woman to win a Tony as director on Broadway um, for, the Martin, for the Martin McDonough play, The Beauty Queen of Linan. And the actress who won the Tony that year was Marie Mullen. And um, the, again, that, that issue of watching people uh, performing magic and then watching them saunter in and stand on their own in a bar, be quite different, with, where they would take it wasn't just about makeup and costumes, it was about something in the body and something in the soul, something in the self, that they could let loose on the audience or control with the audience, and then when all that was over, all they wanted to be was somebody ordinary, just having a drink with their friends I was fascinated by that idea, in a way it's a novelist's dream, because you have that idea as a novelist that you can enter the secret spirit of any character. That even if a character is saying something warm and wonderful, you can have them feeling something sour and horrible. And it's only you as the novelist can actually play that game with the, with the, in, with the, with the inside of the self or the self that's on display. Um, one of the interesting things about Jack McGarren um, and Samuel Beckett is that Beckett when he wrote Waiting for Godot um, and when he wrote those early plays in Paris he did not think they could be performed in English they were written in French and one of the reasons he didn't think so was that he, he thought that British actors or English actors would play them heroically people who had played kings could not play his tramps and also, people who played tramps could not play his tramps. 
What he wanted was actors who could play tramps as lead actors. In other words, that instead of playing a, um, um, that, that tramp as a side figure on the stage, you would play the tramp as the man who held the stage, whose remarks were equal in their power or in the way they would hold an audience to, to, to the way in which Richard II might do so, or King Lear, or Henry IV. And it, it, the, the idea comes as something fundamental in the Irish theatre, that we don't have a huge repertoire, we don't have a 16th century, we don't have a 17th century, we don't have an 18th, and we don't have a 19th, but we have a 20th. And in the 20th century, we have things such as the Playboy of the Western World, the plays of Sing, the plays of Yeats, the plays of Sean O'Casey, plays in which losers and chancers and people down on their luck have to be played by lead actors. They have to exude a sort of strange power within powerlessness. And when Beckett discovered this um, in these t- um, with Jack McGarren and with the actor Patrick McGee, he discovered that he could work these texts with Irish actors in London rather than English actors in London. So we oversaw a famous production, Endgame. And other people saw the power in these actors, such as um, Stanley Kubrick worked with Patrick McGee and Polanski worked with Jack McGarren because there was something in them that a camera loved. Um, That funny business of not being ready to come on the stage as though you're sitting up on a horse you know, but coming up on the stage as though you know, the very words you speak in all their um, undertones of loss and hate and um, um, feelings of, uh, that, that are bar- so buried that they cannot even be said, so that even speech might actually betray a, a depth of feeling. And um, the... Part of our problem in Ireland is, in the theatre, is that so many of the actors left because the great places to go were to London or New York or Hollywood. So that I saw Gabriel Byrne as a 20-year-old actor on the stage in Dublin. And he was A, the most beautiful man I'd ever seen, and B, he, was extra- he had an ex- that extraordinary business of being able to give away nothing with a glance and then the next glance would give away everything, and nothing would be said. And I saw Liam Neeson doing exactly the same thing as a 20-year-old um, actor in the Project Arts Centre in Dublin. And it, it was clear to me that both of them would go. And, of course, um, we were lucky that we would have the Druid um, actors to stay in Galway, as they still have. So when the... Irish actress Fiona Shaw came back to Ireland to do a number of performances. All eyes were on her, partly because she was English trained. She's from Cork, she's trained in England, and she has a classical training as an actress from England, and she has performed the classical repertoire in England. So that when she came first to the Abbey Theatre in Dublin and played Hedda Gabler, None of us had ever seen an Irish actress do those things. It was, it, it was not merely a way of holding the stage with absolute authority, but a sense of adding to every line elements of, say, neurosis, 
elements of power within the neurosis, elements of something that could not easily be named, so that a dart of the eyes, the, the lingering over a certain word, and also an issue which would be irony. Later, when in recent years, or in recent months indeed, I, I've been talking to her about this because she's playing this text at the moment. She explained something to me that I thought was absolutely fascinating about the difference between us and them. I mean, we know the difference between us and them in many ways, Irish people and English people, but um, <laughs> this, this is something that I had never thought of. She said, no, you see, the, the difference is, or the problem for us, meaning actors working in England, is that all of you, you write in a minor key so much, and your actors play in a minor key, but you strive to have a major effect. And obviously the problems, the risks you take in doing that, well, are obvious, that, that you can become quite sentimental if you strain. In other words, you find in Irish theatre so much, instead of something else happening, someone sings a song. And you really wish they wouldn't sometimes, they would actually do something more useful than singing a song. And that song becomes a sort of trick to sort of get the audience to feel something that actually should be in the text. And um, in England, she said, in London, we play in a major key and we presume that writing is done in that key and that is how we operate. So that when she came, um, she did Medea, which she did here, but, I, but which I saw also in Dublin. And then I saw her wasteland in Australia and it was in Adelaide. And then I did that thing, you know, you, should, you never know whether you should do or not. I was passing by a cafe one day in Adelaide, and there they were sitting, Fiona Shaw and Deborah Warner, who has been her director on some of the best work she's made. And they seemed to be having a very nice, relaxed time without me. I mean, they really didn't seem in any desperate need of me. And isn't that extraordinary that I couldn't just think, well, isn't that wonderful, they're having a relaxing time. No, I went in. and. I said, you know, I, I want to say, and then of course I didn't know quite what I wanted to say. I wanted to say, I think you're wonderful, and I saw, I had a gabbler, and, and Deborah Warner gave me a look that she gives me to this day, that she gave me on the phone this morning at about 10.30. And look, why don't you say something more intelligent since you're here? <laughs> and of course that look makes me stammer, and oh my God, I wish I, was, I, wish I hadn't done this. And, and they both said, so... Who are you? I said, no, 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 I'm just here at the writers. I mean, I'm just, I'm just no, I told that I'm just nobody thing. And I thought, oh my God, I've got to get out of here fast. They were the most formidable people I'd ever met. And it was when they came to Dublin to do Happy Days, and they came in again into the Abbey Theatre, that, that all of us, that, I mean, the theatre was packed every night. And you had this sense, not of somebody, who one of us coming home, but a sense of a, a, a way of being trained as an actress that Irish actors don't have, a way of, 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 of um, parsing and analysing every, every word, every silence, every gesture, and a way of managing to be brutally comic in the middle of a line which didn't actually contain the comic 
but allowed the possibility for it. So you're watching a serious piece of interpretation. And it was soon after that, one night. Parties in Dublin are sort of unusual, I suppose, in that we were talking about the idea of how few parts there were for an actress like that, for a heroic actress, for, for, for an actress who would need a, almost a stage to herself. Yes, there were some of those Ibsen parts. Yes, there were some of those Greek parts. Um, she, had, she had also done a famous Electra. But it was a pity there were so many Greek texts that must have been lost. It'd be so wonderful to have them, even if we could imagine them. If we could, all of us as writers start thinking, what Greek texts were, are not there that should be there, and start writing them. And then, you know, obviously the people I was talking to grew tremendously bored with this conversation. And they wanted to talk about, this is Christmas, you know, they wanted to talk about something more interesting. And then I said, you know, there is one great part for her, one great part for her. And someone uh, you know, finally said, what? And I said, Mary, the Virgin Mary, that's a part for her. And somebody listening who was, who, Lachlan Deegan, who ran the Dublin Theatre Festival, said, will you write that for us? And I, it being Christmas, I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> and then I got a letter from him to say, would you write this for us? And so then I went to Ephesus. And I don't know if anyone here has been to Ephesus. Ephesus obviously was Greece, and it's now Turkey. But that's not the point. The point is that the ruins are ex extraordinary. The, 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 this was once a great place. And the theatres, the sense of the enormous theatres. This is where the Temple of Diana was. The Temple of Diana was one of the wonders of the world. This, and in, in all the museums up and down that coast, there were these statues of the goddess Artemis that were so formidable, so big, so powerful. And I, I began to notice the great difference, say, between the Greek statues and the Roman statues. There was something about the way the heads and bodies of the Greek gods, and especially the goddesses, were made. That, that for me had an extraordinary sort of power. And then it struck me, of course, if Mary came here, and I mean, there's no evidence for any of this. Um, the evidence that Mary came to Ephesus, I suppose, is twofold. One, that a German nun had a dream that she did. <laughs> and a German nun said that if you dig down deep, you will find the, the foundations of the house. But of course, the thing is, if you dig down deep there anywhere, you'll get the foundations of something. And the second thing is that um, in St. John's Gospel, he has Jesus saying from the cross, um, Behold thy mother, behold thy son. Meaning that John must have taken care of her in the aftermath of the crucifixion. If he did, then, then it's clear, and because it's clear that John went to Ephesus, and certainly St. Paul came to Ephesus, um, then perhaps she came too. Perhaps she didn't come, perhaps she never was at the crucifixion, because Matthew, Mark and Luke in the New Testament don't have her there. It's John who has her there. And John wrote later. So who's reliable here? Well, what's, what I became interested in, of course, was the idea that John, um, because I found it in a sentence, and often if you're writing um, fiction, all you need is a single image and a single sentence to get going. Thomas Mann's wife he used to always say to people, don't ask him any questions about his books because he doesn't know anything more than what's in them. They often, they, they, I mean, they often look as though he has done a vast quantity of research 
He actually hasn't. <laughs> he just found something he needed, almost like a dog will find some choice piece of meat and just run before another dog gets it. And so too with a novelist and imagery, that when you find one, the one is almost enough for you. And you need to stop reading, stop researching, and just wait until that image or the idea around the image moves into rhythm and becomes a sentence. And then you must work. And um, so the idea, and, and it's in a single sentence in Evie Rue's translation of the Gospels, that St. John, he says he read Aeschylus. Well, I decided to take the word read out of there and put in saw that he saw Greek theatre, that he, in, in his time, in, and, it, and it makes sense, of course, he would have. In the evening, he would have seen a great actress playing Medea, or he would have seen a great actor, or he would have seen Electra, he would have seen Antigone, he would have seen the Orestes, he would have seen the power that those plays had on a vast audience. And he realised, when he came to write his Gospel, what was missing in the other Gospels was the sense of a goddess, the sense of a grieving woman, the sense of a woman who, who somehow or other could capture the imagination of anyone reading. And absent, that, that if that wasn't there, something really crucial wasn't there, as though you would have those plays, those Greek plays without women. He understood that, at least in my idea he did. And um, so... I also began to think, what would it be like? I mean, that simple business of what would it be like to come after the crucifixion to this place where you didn't speak the language, where every single thing was new to you, and where you had been through um, a traumatic experience. And of course, we know so much now about the idea of unresolved experience. I just um, maybe just say something brief about my own experience of this. Um, I, I was working um, in my twenties as the editor of a magazine in Dublin, and one of our contributors was the Irish feminist writer June Levine, and we became friends. She was much older than I was, and we became friends. And I would go up to their house for dinner, and um, still, and her husband was always there. And, I mean, he was a doctor. We used to call him doctor, professor, because he couldn't stop working. I don't know if you have that problem, but he would look... I mean, he, no matter what he was... He would look at me. He was a shrink. He was a psychiatrist. And he would look at me. I would, I would stop looking at me. I'm not... Like, I'm, I'm, I'm having my dinner. And he would always say the same thing to me. Are your parents still alive? <laughs> And I would, each time, tell him. He would forget. But each time, I would be in mid... I would be in mid... Just like now, I'd be in mid-story. And Ivor would just be waiting beside me. And when I'd finish, he'd say, I'm just wondering about you. Are your parents still alive? <laughs> and one day I said to him, Ivor, you know, my father died when I was 12 and he lost his speech when I was 8. And he said, well, what was that like? And, he, and I said, ah, it was all right. You know, because you see, he was a teacher, I was always so worried about going into, be, into his classroom to be taught by him, and I never was. And I was so relieved, in a way, that I didn't have to go through that. <laughs> that when he died, I thought, 
oh, at least I don't have to go into his classroom now and be, you know, have him as a, my teacher as well as my father. So actually, oddly enough, it was almost a relief. He looked at me with absolute, the gravity of his gaze and said, you have to deal with that. <laughs> You're going to have to deal with that. I mean, that shrug of yours um, isn't, isn't normal, you know. Like someday or other, you're going to have to handle this. And he, he put a lot of pressure on me over the years. It took a long time. And eventually, because he said that his wife, June Levine, needed help in this thing he was organising in a disused church in the grounds of um, Grange Gorman Hospital, which, which he, was medical, he was medical supervisor of, um, where he, he would bring in people who were suffering from trauma for a weekend. And uh, he didn't advise me in advance what he was going to do to me, but it was, I promised I wouldn't leave, and I promised I wouldn't laugh. I certainly didn't laugh. I did try to leave, but um, where he put me through um, heavy breathing, everyone lay on, lay on mattresses, and we all did this heavy breathing, and we all went into another state of consciousness. And of course, I was this kid whose father had just died, something I had never he said, even experienced the first time. And he put me through it, and he put me through it, and he put me through it. And when I thought I, I couldn't do any more, he made me do more. And that was only Friday. And um, I realized that inside the onion of us all, when you take the first skin off, there's another one. And again, it's what I'm talking about with actors, but I didn't realize with me that just inside this skin, just as a result of breathing a bit, I got an absolute sense. I mean, it wasn't that I um, got in touch with this 12-year-old boy. I became him. And I went through what he didn't go through. And, and I realized that I'd been carrying this around, ready in some way, inside. And that, but, it, but it came out so easily, and it was so filled with anguish. That, but the experience, of course, mattered enormously to me, not only as a citizen, or as a, as a person, but of course when you go to write. So when you're talking about that idea of the, the Henry James within Henry James, by the time I wrote that book, I knew I had done all of that. And not only that, but I had talked to Ivor a lot about the theory of what he was doing and um, how it worked and what he thought about it. And um, so the idea I had then for, um, for Mary, was that she would arrive a number of years after the crucifixion. It doesn't really matter. And the only thing she had not done was resolve or live through a thing. And that she was almost in some eternal state of talking about it. And that somehow or other that talking about it wasn't helping either. That, that, that whatever was wrong with her, um, it, it was that the, the speaking about it wouldn't even do the work. Um, and I, I suppose I also became, um, and I think this is in the book more than it's been in either of the plays or, or the productions, that of course it would be impossible for someone under those conditions to accept meekly that this crucifixion was necessary for the redemption of mankind, but that she may have been going into her own space, and it may have been a spiritual space of hers that was not necessarily the spiritual space that the men who were writing the New Testament, were, were the spiritual space that they were going into. So that 
for her, this was not only unresolved experience, it was ragged experience, it was filled with detail. Nothing in it could be organised into a written form. It was still the next, it was as though the next thing still had not occurred and she wanted to tell the next thing, whereas they were actually planning the spreading of Christianity throughout the Western world. So that these were men who were arranging, this was a woman who was suffering, and they were in the same space together. The problem was that the text I wrote was 26,000 words, and it was pointed out to me that if this were done properly in the theatre, it would last four hours. And that um, I sort of looked bright about that and said, well, you know, um, didn't Eugene O'Neill do, you know, doesn't the, and they said, no, like, no actress can do that. We cannot ask a single actress to hold an audience for four hours. In fact, an hour, an hour and 20 minutes is as much as can be is as much as can be done. And then with these two actresses that I had seen for 35 years with Gary Hines and Marie Mullen, and that lovely thing a writer always wants is to go to work every day like everybody else at the same time. (laughs) You always look at people going to work and thinking, God, if only I had a job. (laughs) I might be happy or something. And um, so at half nine every morning, I would go up to Dublin as though I was going to work in a bank or some teacher, just something useful. And um, we would work for the whole day. Uh, And what I realised, I mean, what is the difference between fiction, between a novel, between that form and theatre? One of the obvious ones I discovered is that uh, play will not take a journey. That, That a novel is effectively a journey. In other words, if you have A here and B there, the getting to B from A is the whole novel. And things you think on the way, things that happen to you on the way, small events, large events, thoughts, incidents. Arriving at B is helpful, but it's not great compared to the halfway space between A and B. In a play, if you have A and you mention B, the lights change and you're in B. All that stuff about A to B must just, just simply dissolves. And how it dissolves is interesting. The actress suddenly tells you, and, and I mean, they told me, first of all, well, they often told me directly, but they told me other, otherwise indirectly, the sweetest way, but it's just, she would do it for me. And there would be something so wrong with it that I would say, there's something really wrong with that, and they would just nod. And I would say, why don't we cut all of that? And they would nod. And it would be really hurtful, you know, because you think that surely one of them is going to say, no, there's a lovely little sentence in there that we'd love to still know. They were, I mean, they were really ruthless. And because we had to take, I mean, we had to take two-thirds out of it. And um, the, um, what happened then as we worked on the Dublin production? I don't, I don't I mean, is, is there anyone here who's done psychiatry or is there, are you, I mean, any, anyway, I'll just talk a bit more about this. Um, as we worked on the production in Dublin, now it's very intense because there's just one actress, there's a director, and there's the writer sitting beside the director. And we're in Ireland, you have to remember, where the minor key can be used, where we live in a minor key, where we make sweet sounds with a minor key. And the, the, the actress, they began with this wonderful thing that, I, that was new to me. We don't know what to do with this. We don't know. Do you that the director said, I don't know how to do this. And she wasn't afraid to say that. And the actress said, I don't know how to do this either. 
and we were going to then have to find out how to do it. But there would, there would, there, there would never be a right way. There would never be a day where we would say, we have it now. It was so tentative, slow, so slow, so strange. And we were working from ourselves. That, in other words, Gary Hines, who was directing, had lost her younger brother, Jerome. He died suddenly, a few years earlier, and he was a friend of mine. And I had lost my brother, Niall, um, who was my younger brother, a few years earlier, too. And we found that we... Uh, that the director had created a safe space for us to work enough for that to become part of the way we process this material. That, 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 that in other words, I would be able to say to the actress, look, you, you know, in those lines there, when, when I'm talking about someone getting very bad news, when the thing is you can never absorb it. You always want to do something else. You say... Yes, um, when I heard the news, you know what I did? I made sure that the bottle of white wine was put back into the fridge. Now, why did I do that? Why would I have done that? It was the last thing needed. I was almost ashamed of it when I realised I'd done that, that I thought about keeping the white wine chilled rather than actually making a phone call or running out of the house. And that the days around that, that death were so filled with those details. I mean, obviously they were filled with details that we didn't need to even mention, but I mean the ones where you find yourself doing something so strange, so far away from where you think you should be. I mean, you start thinking about practical things, or you, you start having an ordinary conversation with someone, or you manage to fall asleep for a while. And that we were, we were working out of that, and the performance that Marie did in Dublin was absolutely infused with the fact that myself and the director had been almost working through her, our own particular experiences that we were finding in any case very difficult to deal with, that our unresolved experience became the unresolved experience of this. Um, and um, this time round, um, dealing with... Deborah Warner and Fiona Shaw um, has been an entirely different experience. Again, you're dealing with two, with a director and an actress. In, in the case of Fiona and Deborah, I think they've worked together for 25 years. And that they're, what they're doing down on Broadway is that their efforts... Um, there, there are times when I would say, could you not just speak these lines... Could we not just leave these lines in and just say them? And they would say, we can never do that. I mean, have you lost your mind? <laughs> Every line has to have a correlative, has to have a thing that she does with her body, with her voice, with her eyes, with an object on the stage. You can't just speak the lines. That's called radio. And I said, oh, that's called radio. And the, so that in the, in the entire process... There, there are times when what I'm going to do now became a sort of relief that I could just read the text, that I wouldn't have to get into water or, or have a bird on my arm or think of all the props I would use, that I would simply let the words do what I thought they did in the first place and go back to the idea of prose. So I'm just going to read two bits from this book. I'm going to read the opening, a short bit from the opening, and then I'll just introduce the second bit when I come to it. But this bit from the opening... I also want to say that um, 
this is invented, that there's, a, that there's an image here um, of birds, there's an image here of, uh, of a rabbit and birds, and that's not from any source, that's come from my own diseased mind. In other words, I didn't, there's no source for that. Also, if people find anachronisms in this, I mean, there aren't very many, but one of them obviously is that there were no rabbits um, in the Middle East in these years. But, but of course, when the painters in the Renaissance painted the crucifixion, they always gave them things in the background that were Italian villas or Italian light or Italian grandeur. So I felt free to do that if I wanted. <laughs> they appear more often now, both of them, and on every visit they seem more impatient with me and with the world. There's something hungry and rough in them, a brutality boiling in their blood, which I have seen before and can smell as an animal that is hunted can smell. But I'm not being hunted now, not anymore. I'm being cared for and questioned softly and watched. They think that I do not know the elaborate nature of their desires, but nothing escapes me now except sleep. Sleep escapes me. Maybe I'm too old to sleep, or there is nothing further to be gained from sleep. Maybe I do not need to dream or need to rest. Maybe my eyes know that soon they will be closed forever. I will stay awake if I have to. I will come down this passageway as the dawn breaks, as the dawn insinuates its rays of light into this room. I have my own reasons to watch and wait. Before the final rest comes this long awakening, and it is enough for me to know that it will end. They think I do not understand what is slowly growing in the world. They think I do not see the point of their questions and do not notice the cruel shadow of exasperation that comes hooded in their faces or hidden in their voices when I say something vague or foolish, something which leads us nowhere. When I seem not to remember what they think I must remember, they are too locked into their vast and insatiable needs and too dulled by the remnants of a terror we all felt then to have noticed that I remember everything. Memory fills my body as much as blood and bones. I like it that they feed me and pay for my clothes and protect me, and in return I will do for them what I can, but no more than that. Just as I cannot breathe the breath of another or help the heart of someone else to beat or their bones not to weaken or their flesh not to shrivel, I cannot say more than I can say. And I know how deeply this disturbs them, and it would make me smile, this earnest need for foolish anecdotes or sharp, simple patterns in the story of what happened to us all. Except that I have forgotten how to smile. I have no further need for smiling, just as I had no further need for tears. There was a time when I thought that I had, in fact, no tears left, that I had used up my store of tears, but I am lucky that foolish thoughts like this never linger or are quickly replaced by what is true. There are always tears if you need them enough. It is the body that makes tears. I no longer need, need tears, and that should be a relief, but I do not seek relief. Merely solitude and some grim satisfaction which comes from the certainty that I will not say anything that is not true. Of the two men who come, one was there with us until the end. There were moments then when he was soft, ready to hold me and comfort me as he is ready now to scowl impatiently, when the story I tell him does not stretch to whatever limits he has ordained. Yet I can see signs of that softness still, and there are times when the glow in his eyes returns before he sighs and goes back to his work, writing out the letters one by one that make words he knows I cannot read, 
which recount what happened on the hill and on the days before and the days that followed. I've asked him to read the words aloud to me, but he will not. I know that he has written of things that neither he saw nor I saw. I know that he has also given shape to what I lived through and he witnessed, and that he has made sure that these words will matter, that they will be listened to. I remember too much. I am like the air on a calm day as it holds itself still, letting nothing escape. As the world holds its breath, I keep memory in. So when I told him about the rabbits, I was not telling him something that I had half forgotten and merely remembered because of his insistent presence. The details of what I told him were with me all the years in the same way as my hands or my arms were with me. On that day, the day he wanted all the details of, the day he wanted me to go over and over for him, in the middle of everything that was confused, in the middle of all the terror and shrieking and the crying out, a man came close to me who had a cage with a huge angry bird trapped in it. The bird, all sharp beak and indignant gaze. The wings could not stretch to their full width, and this confinement seemed to make the bird frustrated and angry. Should have been flying, hunting, swooping on its prey. The man also carried a bag, which I gradually learned was almost half full of live rabbits, little bundles of fierce and terrorised energy. And during those hours on that hill, during the hours that went more slowly than any other hours, he plucked the rabbits one by one from a sack and edged them into the barely open cage. The bird went for some part of their soft underbelly first, opening the rabbit up until its guts spilled out, and then of course its eyes. It is easy to talk about this now because it was a mild distraction from what was really going on. And it is easy to talk about it too because it made no sense. The bird did not seem to be hungry, although perhaps it suffered from a deep hunger that even the live flesh of writhing rabbits could not satisfy. The cage became half full of half-dead, wholly uneaten rabbits, exuding strange squealing sounds, twitching with odd bursts of life. And the man's face was all bright with energy. There was a glow from him as he looked at the cage and then at the scene around him, almost smiling with dark delight, the sack not yet empty. I think there are two ways then, maybe there are more ways, but two, let's say, of looking at what happened as to how Christianity spread in this way, how the news, when it arrived in places, seemed to take hold of people's imagination and they believed in it. I have, I have a running argument with um, Eamon Duffy, who's a friend of mine, who's one of the great historians of Christianity. I said, Eamon, Eamon, how did it happen? Like, what happened? He said, no, no, you don't understand. I said, what? He said, God intervened in history. God came down into history and sliced through history and opened a space in history. And that is what happened. And, and it's as simple as that. I said, Eamon, I don't think so. Eamon, I, I, I mean, are you sure? I mean, can you give me evidence? He said, stop it, you're brought up a Catholic. There's absolutely no reason why you shouldn't be believing this. I said, Eamon, I don't believe, I just can't see it. God intervened in history, it's lovely. And, and we'll all live forever. He said, oh God. And the other possibility is, of course, that the story itself that, that the ideas, that whatever was in the story that came in the books hit people, hit people's mind. And if you look, for example, at, there, there are some wonderful poems describing this. There's a, there's, a, there's a poem by John Milton where he describes, it's a sonnet, where he describes, sonnet 23, where he describes that his wife came back 
his dead wife came back and he had her for a moment and then of course she faded she was dead but, but in a dream she came back Tom Gunn has a poem called The Reassurance in which a friend of his who had died of AIDS came back and, and, and I'm alright now you said and it's how like how like you to try how like you to try and reassure how like my mind to make itself secure and that idea of the mind after death wanting something more to happen than what has happened something to be undone some possibility of something else and, and that if you look at the New Testament and look at the resurrection itself the idea no after three days he rose again that that actually has an extraordinary power for all of us that idea no no in the story or in the truth or whatever you want to call it he rose again and so when I was writing this and I came to the idea of Lazarus I planned to gloss over it in the same way as I planned to gloss over some of the miracles because I didn't want uh, because Mary hadn't actually the only miracle she witnessed was the miracle um, of the changing of the water into wine um, which I was sort of uneasy about I mean I have her it's, it's, um, Fiona Shaw does the line particularly well that she thought that perhaps some of the people who wanted the wine had had enough wine but um, of course I found myself with the story of Lazarus finding that pages and pages that the story simply held me in a different way that I, I couldn't have written the resurrection it seemed very far away from me but this idea of someone's brother of the brother of um, Mary Magdalene and Martha who had died actually being raised again and coming back into the world that idea um, began to hold me and I have to say that no matter what we took out for the two plays the, the, we couldn't t- almost couldn't touch the story which was probably written over two or three days um, and I didn't know what I was doing I tried to stop myself I tried to, like, I'm wasting time I'm, this is a story that won't ever make it into the book I'll end up just cutting this but actually when we tried to do it in the theatre it was the one thing no matter what else was going to be taken out this was going to be left in both when I worked with Gary Hines and with um, Marie Mullen and when I worked for this production with Fiona Shaw and Deborah Warner that whatever and, and uh, you know I, I don't necessarily think it has to do with the writing I think it has to do with the image itself and I don't just think that the image itself is theatrical it may be but I think that the image itself somehow or other holds us and has a power over us. And maybe the next time I see Eamon Duffy, I want to continue my argument with him. I'll say, Eamon, it's all story. It's a good story. And the best storyteller of all, I mean, the great novelist, um, was St. John. <laughs> and um, if only we had him here. <laughs> Close to the house of my cousin Miriam was the house of Lazarus. I had known him since he was a baby. Of all the children that any of us had, he was, from the day he appeared in the world, the most beautiful. He seemed to smile before he did anything else. When we visited Ramira, his mother, she would put her finger to her lips and take us across the room to where his cot lay. And when we looked in, he seemed to be already smiling. It made his mother at times almost embarrassed because when we came to visit, we would discover that we were not alone in feeling that we had come to visit the boy as he learned to walk and talk as much as we had come to see his parents or his sisters. 
Instantly, as soon as other children saw him, they wanted him in their game. Whatever they did once he was there became peaceful and harmonious. I know now that he was alone among us in possessing something strange. He had not been visited by darkness or by fear, by what comes into our spirits in the deepest part of the, the night or the end of the Sabbath and lurks there. There were years when I did not see him, the years when the family moved to Bethany before they returned to live in Canaan. But I always heard the news and it always included something about him. How he was growing up golden and graceful, serious and kind. And how worried they were because they knew that they would not be able to keep him among the olive groves and the fruit trees. That something would happen to him, that a great city would call to him that the charm he exuded and his beauty, grown manly now, would need another realm in which to flourish. But no one realised that it would be the realm of death he was destined for, that all the grace and beauty, all of his aura of specialness, like a gift from the gods to his parents and his sisters, that all of it was a grim joke, like being teased by, this, by a smell of delicious food or the possibility of plenty, when it was really only something passing by destined for elsewhere. I know that he moaned in pain for a day or two. Then he was better, and then the pains came again, and they came in his head, and they often lasted through the night, and that he cried out, he cried out, that he would promise to be good. But there was nothing to be done. There was poison growing in his head. He began to weaken, and he could not bear light, even a chink of light. If the door opened, as someone came into the room, it would be enough for him. He would cry out, I do not know for how long this went on. I know that they cared for him, and I know too that it was as though a golden harvest had been mowed down by a night's dark wind, or a pestilence had come into the trees and shrunk the fruit, and was unlucky even to mention his name or ask for news of him. So I did not ask for news of him, but I often thought of him, especially as I prepared to come to Cana. I wondered if I should visit him or his sisters. As I set out, I did not know that he had already died. When I arrived in Cana, there was a strange emptiness in the streets. I heard afterwards that for two hours or more some days earlier the birds had withdrawn from the air as though it were night. But there was some cataclysm in progress that meant danger to them and made them retreat into their nests. And there was a hushed holding in of things. No wind, no rustling in the leaves of trees, no animal sounds. Cats moved out of sight and shadows, even the very shadows, stayed as they were. Lazarus had died a week earlier, and then when he was four days in his grave, my son and his followers reached Cana with their high-flown talk. And when my son told them to dig Lazarus up, remove him from his tomb, no one wanted to do this. In the days before he died, Lazarus had become peaceful and beautiful. No one wanted to touch him now, disturb him in the ground, but so great was the frenzy at the arriving whore that his sisters had no choice. The crowd had arrived with news of a blind man who could see, and of a gathering where there was no food, and which had, as though by a miracle, been filled with plenty. The talk was of nothing except power and miracles. It was as if the crowd was roaming the countryside like a swarm of locusts in search of want and affliction. But no one among them thought that anyone could raise the dead. It had occurred to no one. Most of them believed, or so I learned, that it should not even be attempted, that it would represent a mockery of the sky itself. They felt, as I felt, as I still feel, that no one should tamper with the fullness that is death. Death needs time and silence. The dead must be left alone with their new gift or their new freedom from affliction. I know because Marcus told me that Mary and Martha, the two sisters, are the dead boy.
began to follow my son once they'd heard news of the lame walking and the blind seeing. And I understood that they would have done anything in those last silent days. They watched helplessly as their brother grew easily towards death. In the same way as a source for a river hidden under the earth begins flowing and carries water across a plain to the sea. They would have done anything to divert the stream, make it meander on the plain and dry up under the weight of the sun. They would have done anything to keep their brother alive. They sent word to my son and they asked him to come, but he did not. There was something I learned when I saw him myself, that if the time was not right, he would not be disturbed by a merely human voice or the pleadings of anyone he knew. Thus he paid no attention to what he heard from Martha and Mary. And they stayed with their brother so they would, they would be with him when he took his last breath when he was fully part of the waves of the sea, an invisible aspect of their rhythm. And during those days then, as river water slowly took on the taste of salt, and they buried him, and he lay fresh in the earth, many people who had loved Lazarus and who had known his sisters came to the house to comfort them. There was talk and lamentation. And then when they heard that the crowd had arrived, like a carnival, with every malcontent and half-crazed soothsayer following in its wake, Martha went out into the streets to announce her brother's death to my son. She confronted him and won silence from him and those around him, and she cried out, If you had been here, he would not have died. And she was ready to go further but stopped for a moment when she saw how sorry he was, when she saw how he knew or seemed to know that the suffering and death of Lazarus was a sadness almost too great for anyone to bear, and that was a weight that could not be lifted. Having let the silence linger for some moments, Martha spoke again as the crowd listened. She spoke very quietly, but what she said was heard. She was so desperate in her grief that her pleading sounded like a challenge. I know, she said, that even now that he is four days in the earth, you have the power to raise him. He will rise, my son replied, as all mankind will rise, when time relents, when the sea itself becomes a blast. He still is, no! Martha said, you have the power to do it now. She told my son then what the others had told him, that he was not mortal as we are mortal, but she believed that he was God's son, that he had been sent to us in mortal guise, but he was not mortal and he had powers, that he was the one we had been waiting for, who would be king on earth and in the skies, and that she and her sister had been among those blessed enough to recognise him as they recognised him now. For the sake of her brother, she told him in plain loud words, with her arms spread out wide, that he was the son of God. When Martha found Mary, who had returned to the grave to weep there, she too went to my son and told him that he had the power. As she wept, so did he, because he had known Lazarus all of his life and had loved him as all of us did. And he came with her to the grave, freshly covered with earth. And there was a murmuring from the crowd that had followed, people shouting that if he could heal the sick and make the crippled walk and the blind see, then he could raise the dead. Stood there silently for a time, and then in a voice like a whisper, he ordered the grave to be dug up. While Martha, screaming now, afraid that what she'd asked for was being granted, cried that they had suffered enough, and the body would be stinking and rotting after its time in the earth. But my son insisted, and the crowd stood up by the gra- as the grave, and the crowd stood by, as the grave was opened, and the soft earth lifted from where it lay over Lazarus's body. Once the body could be seen, most of the onlookers moved away in horror and fright, all except Martha and Mary and my son, who called out the words, Lazarus, come forth. And gradually the crowd came close again to the grave, and this was the time when the birdsong ceased, and the birds withdrew from the air. 
Martha believed too that time was then suspended, that in those hours nothing grew, nothing was born or came into being, nothing died or withered in any way. Slowly the figure, dirtied with clay and covered in grave clothes, wagged around him, began with great uncertainty to move in the place they had made for him. It was as though the earth beneath him was pushing him and then letting him be still in his great forgetfulness and nudging him again like some strange new creature jerking and wriggling towards life. He was bound with the sheets and his face was covered with a napkin and now he turned as a child in the freshness of the womb turns knowing that his time there is up and he must wrestle his way into the world. Loose him. Let him go, my son said. And the two men came, two neighbours, and they stood in the grave as those around watched in hushed amazement and fright as they'd lifted Lazarus and then unbound him. He stood with merely a cloth around his waist. He'd been unchanged by death. Once his eyes opened, he stared at the sun with a deep, unearthly puzzlement, and then at the sky around the sun. He seemed not to see the crowd. Some sounds came from him, not, not, not words exactly, something closer to whispered cries or whimpers, and then the crowd stood back as Lazarus moved through them, past them, looking at no one, being led by his sisters back to their house, the world around remaining still and silent, and my son too, I am told, still in silence, as Lazarus began to weep. At first they noticed just the tears, but then his crying came in howls as his sister led him gently towards the house, across the path, followed all the way by the silent crowd as the howling grew louder and more fierce. By the time they reached their door, he could barely walk. They disappeared inside and closed the shutters from the burning sun and did not appear again that day, despite the waiting crowd who lingered hour after hour, even as night fell, and some indeed through the night itself and even as the morning came. And then a few days later, Mary comes face to face with Lazarus. Their brother stood in the doorway and then moved quietly into the room. When he sighed, all of us moved towards him, and it was then, just then, that the opportunity came. And it was the only one I had, and I think it may have been the only opportunity anyone had to ask him. It was the semi-darkness of the room, the stillness of the air, and the fact that all of us, us four women, would know to keep silent about what we should not speak of. There, there were a few seconds in which any one of us could have asked him about the cave full of souls where he had been. Was it a place of massive, obliterating darkness, or was there light, of wakefulness, or of dreams, or of deep sleep? Were there voices, or was there pure stillness, or some other sound like the dripping of water, or sighs, or echoes? Did, did he know anyone? Did he meet his mother, whom we had all loved? Did he remember us as he wandered in the place where he had been? Was it blood or pain? Was it a landscape of dull, washed colours, or a red vastness with cliffs or forests or deserts or encroaching mist? Was anyone afraid? Did he wish to return there? Lazarus stood in the darkened room and sighed again, and something was broken. The great chance had escaped us, maybe never to return. Absolutely. We have time for questions. Question. 
How is Bert Law's doctor? He was in way for control. And he, he read all these reviews. He said to me, Doc, I don't know what these guys are talking about. I just read the lines. <laughs> but I have a, a separate question. Forgive me for this. Uh, I am a religious atheist. It is written that Christ and the disciples had 40 days walking the earth after his resurrection. You, is that familiar to you? Well, certainly. Jesus has written about it, but it's talked about. Well, the 40 days that I know are the 40 days in the desert when Jesus went to penance. But, but I, I, I do want to comment on that Beckett line because I think it's essential. When, when McCurran and McGee asked Beckett what to do, he, that's what he said. He said, could you say the lines and could you not act? I mean, don't act, just say them. In other words, find a dominant emotion. Or find, or not, emotion wasn't the word. Find a dominant key. Find a way to say them, and when you've done that, say them. And then it will be all right. But if you try and, and do too much, it won't be all right. So that, I, that idea of that shrug, you know... I just read the lines. Well, you know, in, in the same way, I, I only know about those one 40 days, and they weren't, those 40 days were no use to me for this. Somehow, the 40 days in the desert, there's a wonderful novel about Jesus' 40 days in the desert by Jim Crace called where, Quarantine, by the way. Where is Mary during these 40 days? But, I mean, where is she in, in for example, even, where is Mary even in Luke? I mean, when you go through the, the New Testament looking for Mary, you find she's there when he's an infant. She's there for the Annunciation. But she's, she's palpably absent in the book. And, and that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't have her at the crucifixion. Except that she gets to say the Magnificat at one point. But the Magnificat is not speech. It seems manufactured in some way. So, I mean, I mean it's, it's a strange business. I, I have to say, you know, that, that, that this is filled with shadow. This, I mean, if you go and do the work, the research, it's filled with shadow rather than substance, which is a gift in a way if you're writing fiction because out of the, out of the shadow you can get much more. Out of what's not there, you can imagine. If it's all there, then it's done or it's too factual. It's useless to you. Humility, especially if you're a writer, is, is maybe more important than humility in a doctor, and probably is rare. <laughs> you know, um, that in other words, you, you really do very little. You, 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 
try and write sentences and hope they add up to something. But uh, as regards to being able to deal with something like the meaning of life, you're probably singularly ill-equipped yourself because you're operating out of vast areas of fear and doubt. And that if they weren't there, if there wasn't a sort of strange vacuum there, you, you, you really wouldn't be able to work at all. If there was certainty there, you, you really wouldn't be able to work at all. So that your own presence in a book, in a, in a way, is, is one of, it's a sort of shivering mess of, of a presence. And, and I wouldn't recommend anyone to take a novel seriously. I mean, enough to, that it could give them the meaning of life. On the other hand, what else is there? Um, in, for example, that great company Druid, yeah. they trained each other. Yes, yes that, that, there, that there was no drama school they all attended, where they went for three years and learned voice, learned movement, learned everything else. They, they worked with their audience and they got their training by actually working and with each other. And that this, and that this gives well, yes, but 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 it, but it also then became, I think, immensely sophisticated because of how close the relationship remained to the audience, and um, even I mean I know they brought these Tom Murphy plays to the Lincoln Center um, here in the summer, but they're bringing those plays to their most remote parts of Ireland, and crowds are coming. They're bringing them onto the islands, and so they have maintained. Uh, absolutely, uh, you know, almost a sort of a, uh, I mean, a funny relationship to their audience, which gives them a sort of power. But, but yes, they haven't been to RADA. They, they haven't had their voices trained or their voices changed. And it gives the performances, especially of the work of Singh, but also, oddly enough, the work of Shakespeare, <laughs> a, a sort of immediacy. I mean, I'm, I'm in a sense that you, you are not hiding behind the screen of your voice or of your movement, that you're actually working much more fundamentally and viscerally um, with the lines. So I, I think there is a great difference in that. And, and I think that comes in, in a way that is the very beginning of Irish theatre. In other words, that when W.B. Yeats and Lady Gregory, in around 1898, went to see what they could find in Dublin, they found these amateur actors who were working in small halls for audiences who were so, so needy for those images. And when they founded the Abbey Theatre, they were not interested in, in, in setting up an acting school. You know, and, of course, it's significant that you know, Singh, the playwright, playwright of the Western world, of course he fell in love with the girl who played Peggy Mike because in a way she was operating um, in relation to the audience as herself as much as she was attempting to, after a great deal of thought and work and you know, highly wrought study, to become somebody else. So that in those early years in the Irish Theatre, in, of the Abbey Theatre, and into the period of Sean O'Casey, meaning into the 1920s, people were coming from the very families that the plays were set in. Um, the actors were coming from those very families without any sort of mediating thing that created irony, distance, uh, fourth wall, or any form of curtain. 
so that the, the, those plays just enter the national spirit and, and, and indeed the plays of Singh and O'Casey caused riots in the theatre as well because if you came too close people would, would actually feel threatened and there are times when if I'm, I mean, if I'm watching something, even something wonderful in the Royal Court in London or the National Theatre in London I'm, I'm watching distance being created and that, to this day in Ireland you're watching something else much, much more satisfying when it's good to an audience and when it's bad there's nothing worse than it by the way <laughs> because you're watching a sort of amateur spirit in, in, a, in a state of failure so, so it's, I mean, it's not a, you know, a permanent success it's a great risk to take in a way to take actors like that and work with them as rawly as that one more question you have lit up for me something about the difference between an Irishman in Ireland and an Irishman who has to come to England and then go back to become what he would become. Uh, Yeats, about whom I wrote my thesis in college, Yeats was a fascinating person who I think had he not come to live in England would not have been in any way near as intense an observer as he was. And I wonder if you would have a better view of that than I, because I'm not Irish a little bit Scottish, but not Irish. But nonetheless, I had the feeling that Yeats had some intensity about him, which depended on his having been become ectopic and then going back. D- does this happen? Yeah, yeah, just, just if I have, can I, do I have a second just to talk about this? Um, uh, I'm teaching a course um, with undergraduates in Colombia at the moment called Irish Prose. And when we've come up to this period, you know, we've been doing Sings the Aran Islands, We've been, we, were, we were doing Elizabeth Bowen yesterday. Um, we, 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 we've been doing other books from that period. Um, the students laugh because I, I had my collected Yeats with me. And every so often I say, OK, now, the issue now here is, where was Yeats? And they all laugh. And, um, of course, you know, where was Yeats in 1916? He was in England. Where was Yeats in 1919? He was in England. He was in Ireland for the Civil War. Um, but but the, he found a sort of nourishment in London. And one of, the, one of the things he found in London, and this comes out, I think, very significantly in um, Roy Foster's two-volume biography, he found that he could become three or four people in the same day, which is, I think, what we all aspire to. You know, in other words, that in the morning he could be writing, he could write a poem, or he could be writing a poem about lost love. In the afternoon he could be having an affair with somebody. In the, then he could go and become a, an Irish nationalist. Then he could go and have tea with a duchess. And then in the evening he could be a theosophist and be trying to find ghosts. All in the same day, flitting in London from one group of people to another. And that gave him, I mean, th- that was part of the spirit of the age in a way. It gave us Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, it gave us Dorian Gray, um, and it gave us Joseph Con- I mean, It gave us, I mean, for writers, that, that idea of being able to move yourself each day, being able to remake yourself in any social occasion, which would have been much more difficult to do in Dublin, where he was merely the poet W.B. Yeats who walked the streets looking like a dreamer. Um, I mean, a friend of mine who knew him said his eyesight was perfect, he could see you a mile away. <laughs> but of course he pretended he would. You know, so the Dublin would have made him single had he stayed there. It would have made him mono, as it were. And, and London allowed him all of these possibilities. Um, and then the, the great miracle that occurred was that Lady Gregory 
Um, she was 40 years a widow. Her, her husband was 35 years older than she, so that he died in 1892, and she dies in 1932. So for 40 years, she's in possession of this house, Cool Park. And um, Arthur Simmons was in the room when W.B. Yeats met Lady Gregory, who was some years older than him, and she, he said, when she put her terrible eye on him, I knew she would keep him. <laughs> and what she did for him was, she said, look, come to the house, take the master bedroom and the study. There's an enormous library. We eat very well. We have servants. Not only that, but in, but in the hinterland, we have people who know stories that are 2,000 years old or more. And they have, they, they, they have got those stories orally from generation to generation, even in this fragile, broken society. That has continued. So that she gave him this for the summer every year. Some years the summers became long. I mean, he could do May to October as a summer. And one year when Lady Gregory's son, Robert, who actually owned the house, went down to look at his, all the wine his father had left, he found Yates had drunk it. Yates had drunk it. So Lady Gregory had to write to Yates and say, could you bring your own wine next year? <laughs> so that this gift was given to him of being able to, you know, um, have those five months of the year for all the lines he'd written, the half lines, the rhymes in his head, the half ideas, in those five months between 1898 and 1917, when he himself got married, um, for those 18 or 19 years, he could write his poems in the absolute solitude and the, and the protection of that, which was, which was an extraordinary idea. And then, of course, knowing when it was all over, he could go back to London and he could multiply himself. And uh, it's, it's what we all want. If anyone knows any, if anyone knows how I could do that, or how indeed you could do it, we should all um, let each other know. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Have a great night, everyone, and we hope to see you next month first Wednesday of the month for Anthony Apaya. There are books in the back for sale. Yeah, yeah.